Uh, welcome to everybody. Welcome to everybody. We, um, we have been going on a deep dive into Philippians. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to call it the Philippians. Uh, wrong country, wrong area of the world, but, um, but I got stuck on that for some reason. But, um, but we're, we're going to continue, and we're still in, in chapter 1. And last week, I sort of introduced the concept of what Paul meant when he said, for me to live is Christ. And, and, and boiled down into just as, as short of a phrase as I possibly can make it, to, to live as Christ means I grow more and more like Jesus Christ every day. That's just, that's what it means. To live as Christ is I become conformed to his image a little bit more each day. It, that's, that's really as simple as I can make it, and that's what it means. I want to imitate him. I want to begin to respond to the world like he would. Not so much even just, uh, just trying to be like him, but also trying to respond like he would as well. And so today what I want to do is I want to attempt to flesh out um, this concept with maybe some more practical ways to do the things that we're talking about, some more practical ways to follow Paul's advice. And the question, again, is, is a simple one. I asked it last week. Um, how should a Christian live? How should a Christian live? What characteristics should make a true Christian stand out from non-Christians and those with a false profession of faith? How should we be different from those people? Paul's going to give us some answers to these questions this morning in our study of Philippians 1, 27 through 30. This passage marks a change in focus from what Paul had written in the first part of this letter. Um, in, the pre, in the previous passages, Paul had been sort of letting them know what was going on in his life. He had shared, you know, his travails and, and what he was going through and, and being in jail and all that kind of stuff. So he had been sharing all that. And then in verses 3 through 11, he had kind of expressed his relationship with the Philippians, his thoughts about the Philippian believers, and, and his prayers for them. We learned a lot just in reading about his prayers. He was thankful to God for them because of their faithful, I love this word, their faithful participation their faithful participation with him in the work of the gospel. Remember that concept, because that's what we're all doing here today. We're all participating in the gospel with each other. By coming in this room, by being co-laborers, we're working together. We are participating in the gospel together. And Paul was confident of God's continued work in them, and so he could pray with that trust that they would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And in verses 12 through 26, Paul explained his situation. He then explains his response to it. We know he was imprisoned. I'd like to do a, a brief uh, synopsis for people who weren't here the previous uh, five weeks, but, um, but he's, he kind of explains where I've been. I, I'm in jail when I write all this stuff. And, um, and there's Christians who are going around trying to cause additional distress to Paul. I mean, there are people who are just taking real advantage that Paul's in jail, and they're going to try to build their own, their own empire. And, and even in that distress, Paul can look and he can say, these people are trying to cause me distress, but you know what? The kingdom is being advanced. The cause of Christ is being preached. The message of Jesus Christ is being preached. And so Paul rejoiced that Christ was being proclaimed, regardless of the motives of the people who were preaching it. And, and Paul thought, again, remember, this is a couple of times it comes out, Paul thought that he was going to survive his imprisonment um, and that he would continue his ministry with them, but he also knew that he could die. And he, he was, he's very clear about that. He said to live as Christ, to die as gain, right? That's this, either outcome is a deliverance in the eyes of Paul. Either outcome is a good thing for Paul. And so we come to verses 27 through 30 this morning. And we find that Paul it changes the focus a little bit from himself to the Philippians. 
And the, transla- the, the, I'm sorry, the transition in uh, verse 27 is direct. And he now begins to address them specifically with specific issues that are going on in the church. And so first, uh, Philippians 1, 27 through 30 says, and I'm going to read the whole passage, then we're going to sort of break it apart. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent. So if I, I, I'm going to try to come and see you, but I'm, that may not happen. We understand that. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So you're even hearing what's going on in my life. So what he, the, the verse that he starts out with, and, and that's kind of like our topic for today, I guess if you could distill it down to a, a sermon title, it would be conduct worthy of the gospel. Really, it's just, we're, it's just part six of our Philippian study, but that's really what we're going to focus on today is, is conduct worthy of the gospel. The theme of this passage is that they are to conduct themselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember last week, Paul didn't want to bring shame to Christ. That was very important in his mind. Uh, we, we think of St. Paul, you know, this lofty, awesome, you know, he's, he wrote so many bo- books of the Bible. He's just this great character in the Bible. And, and even Paul is sitting here worried about bringing shame and reproach to Christ. And, and he doesn't want to do that himself, and he doesn't want us to do that either. He begins that phrase with, and he puts a special emphasis on the word only at the beginning of this sentence. I do this and that. I mean, I do this. This is the most important thing. By saying only, he's stressing that that is the important thing. All of the other things that he then lists are aspects of what the only thing is. So the only thing is to conduct myself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. All the other things that he lists are ways to do that. So we're going to talk about how that all breaks down in just a second. And in this particular passage, the other thing that's going to be, um, that that we're going to talk about as, as examples of the way to do the only thing is, is we're going to stand firm in one spirit, we're going to have unity of mind, working together for the gospel, and we're not going to fear opposition. But the only thing, I want to stress that a couple of times, I, I even highlighted it in blue in my notes. I normally highlight in yellow if I want to stress something, but this one I highlighted in blue because it was super important. But the only thing that he's talking about is, our, is that our conduct be worthy of the gospel. He goes on in chapter 2 to speak about more about unity and humility, which will make the unity possible. But even this falls under this only thing that we're going to talk about. And why is it so important? I mean, you got a hundred reasons, right? Everybody in the room has reasons. Because without a clear understanding of the overall command that he is giving us and the objective that Paul is referencing, the parts that make it up can become separated, disjointed, and they won't flow together. One becomes more important than it's supposed to be, or one becomes less important. Sometimes even to the detriment of the supreme command, the first command, the only thing that he's telling us to remember. And we're going to see how that has happened in this section of Scripture in a few minutes. The other reason that this is important is that with a clear understanding of that supreme, the only thing that we're supposed to be doing, you can still figure out all the lesser commands. If I keep in mind what the supreme, the only thing, Yeah, Brother Tenney used to say, keep the main thing, the main thing. You know, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here with his only, only. Our conduct is to be worthy of the gospel. Once I have that understanding, I'll be able to figure out all the rest of them. 
they'll all make sense because they'll fit in place. And so we've got to understand the only thing. For example, the supreme command that God has given us, of all that he's given us, is to love him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Matthew 22 and 37. And then he gave us a method to do that, right? He gave us the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. So we know God's command is to love him and then love others, and then we're to go and spread that gospel. By keeping, all, by keeping those things in order and understanding what the, mo- the most important thing, right, is to love God. By keeping all that in order, we can figure out all the principles that go underneath it. And all the details that are necessary for carrying this out must never be allowed to take the place of the actual Great Commission. Yet we know what happens in churches all the time. It happens everywhere. It, it, we're, we're, we're not uh, completely without fault, and, and our church isn't perfect either. But what can sometimes happen is we can, we can put the, the priority in the wrong place, or we can get the balance out of whack. Because we're follow, we're, 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 we, we find a scripture we love a whole lot, and so we follow that scripture to the detriment of the things that we're supposed to be doing. There are some churches that are so caught up in teaching ministries that they forget to evangelize. I'm... I'm just being honest with you. There are also some churches that are doing evangelism left and right, but nobody's learning doctrine. That's going on as well. There are some churches that are so caught up with the emotional elements of worship that they neglect the intellectual aspects of worship. There are also some who are caught up in the intellectual side and they forget that they have to fall in love with God's presence. A great problem that is getting worse in American Christianity is churches are reaching out with compassion to sinners, but forgetting to call them to holiness as well. And then the reverse of that is also true. There are also churches that forget to love the sinner at all because they're condemning the sin so hard. Both things are happening. Where does this imbalance come from? Where does that, where does that lack of perspective and that imbalance come from? It comes from basically this exact point. It comes from failing to understand Paul's words here. The command that Paul is giving to the Philippians is to conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Everything else he says is only the way in which we are to carry out that only principle. The main principle is conduct yourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Everything else is how we do that. Those are the ways that we... So how, what does this command mean? What, what, what does it mean, I guess, in a practical way for us? The idea of conduct is to live your life, or more literally, to live as a citizen. And this is an important, a very, very important concept to understand, and it's especially important when we're talking about the Philippians. We're all citizens of the United States. I assume we're all citizens of the United States in this room. If you're not, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not calling uh, immigration or anything like that. Um, But I assume that we're we're all citizens. We have certain rights, don't we? The Bill of Rights grants us certain rights. That whole thing about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that's actually not the Constitution. That's the declaration, but that's kind of what we think of when we think of our rights. We, we have the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I get that the idea of being a citizen of the United States probably doesn't cross your mind every day, does it? Is there anybody in here who wakes up every morning and, by God, I'm a, I'm a U.S. citizen? Probably not. We just don't, and we sure don't think, I'm a Louisiana citizen. That one also doesn't cross our mind. Um, but this idea would have had a very, very strong resonance with the people that Paul is writing to. Paul's audience here is made up of, of these ancient Greek city-states. 
and each one of them, you were a citizen of, a, of the city-state. So you would be a citizen of Philippi or a citizen of Athens or Sparta or something like that. And, and even in those city-states, not everyone who lived there was a citizen. Some of the people were slaves. Some of the people were in sort of in the middle. They, they weren't citizens. So to be a citizen was huge. It was a really, really, really big deal. That to be a citizen was, in, in some ways, it was to be a rare honor. You might have a whole city where less than 10 to 20% of the people living there were actual citizens. So if you were a citizen, you were proud that you were a citizen. It was important that you were a citizen. Being a good citizen, would give, you would give every effort. You would do everything you could to bring honor to the city and never dishonor. Because citizenship could be lost. You could have your citizenship taken away from you. And there probably wasn't anything worse in the Greek world and the Roman world than to have been a citizen and then to have your citizenship taken away. We add to this that Philippi was a Roman colony. So the people who lived, the, the citizens of Philippi weren't just citizens of Philippi. They were also citizens of Rome. We talked about this in the very first week. There, there was, there was, uh, there had been a battle. A great battle had been fought right outside of Philippi, and the people of Philippi had helped the winning side, the Roman, uh, the Roman emperor. They had helped the emperor, and as a reward for them helping him, he had actually extended Roman citizenship. So you've got, if you can picture the Aegean and the, the uh, Adriatic and the Mediterranean Sea, the, uh, you know, where Rome is on the Italian peninsula, over here is where, is where Philippi would be. It's over on the other side of Greece. It's almost on the Turkish side of Greece. So they're, not, they're not next door to each other, but the emperor had extended Roman citizenship to the people of Philippi. That's huge. That's amazingly awesome. You can't even imagine. They're, they're, just, they're, they're not just citizens of the Roman Empire. They're citizens of Rome. That meant something. That's huge. They considered themselves to be little Rome, and they adopted the Roman customs, and they adopted the, Roman, the Latin language. I don't know if you've ever traveled abroad off the beaten path, especially. Like if you've gone to some country that's not really um, maybe friendly uh, someplace, you start to understand this concept of being a citizen. Um, if someone in, in, in that country starts messing with you, you know there is a U.S. embassy somewhere. This is kind of a humorous story, but I got kicked out of a restaurant in Copenhagen, Denmark one time, and I was completely innocent. I wasn't drinking yet at that point, so this was totally innocent. The, the sweet little server, she set me and my date at a table that was like, it was the best table in the restaurant, but apparently it had been reserved for the owner's friend. And so we got seated, and they even started bringing us, you know, drinks and water and things like that, and all of a sudden his friends walk in. So the owner comes over and starts kicking us out of the restaurant. Well, and I guess it was the water side of me, or maybe even the Maxwell side of me, but I raised a ruckus. As I walked out of that place, I told him how bad the food was. I told him how bad the service was. And always in the back of my mind, I knew they can't really do anything to me. I'm an American, which is exactly why the world hates us. But that's what I did. At that point, citizenship for me was very important. I was an American citizen, and they couldn't do much to me. And that's kind of the concept of the, 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 the Philippians had about their citizenship. They were proud to be Philippians. They were proud to be Romans. And so they would have understood something that I did not understand when I was at that restaurant, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. You see, they would have understood that concept. And they would have understand it, understood it to mean that they were to live as a good citizenship, I mean, as a good citizen whose allegiance was to Christ. 
That's who our allegiance is to. They would have clearly understood their conduct to encompass every aspect of their life. It's not just like driving down the road and what we're seeing in public. You're, you are, if you are a citizen of Christ's kingdom, then it, you're at home, you're a citizen. In the privacy of your house, you're a citizen. At, in your car, it just when no one can hear the words that come out of your mouth when people pull out in front of you, you're a citizen of the kingdom. All those things, you are a citizen. And they would have clearly understood that what Paul was talking about. And in chapter uh, 3, later on in, in Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul tells us that uh, as believers, we have our citizenship in heaven. We're not, we're not American citizens. We're not Louisiana citizens. We're not even earthlings, I guess, whatever you would call it, people of earth. We're not that. We are citizens of heaven. I've got a, I've got a lot of favorite verses in the Bible. There's, there's a bunch, but that verse about us being citizens of heaven is in my top five because it describes what we are supposed to be loyal to. Here Paul is commanding them and us to have such a devotion to the kingdom of Jesus Christ that it will result in us always living a life to honor and never dishonor Jesus Christ or his gospel. That's a strong statement, super strong statement. We're not used to being confronted with it in that way. And Paul gives similar commands, so it's not just for the Philippians. He gives similar commands in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, and 1 Thessalonians 2, 14, uh, I'm sorry, 2 and 12, and then 4 and 1 again in, in 1 Thessalonians, that we walk worthy of our calling and, and, and be pleasing to God in all things. It's important to notice that this is a positive command. It's not a negative one. I think it's important here because Paul knows that we will all fail at some times. We're all going to commit sins. All of us will at some point in our lives act in a way that does not bring uh, glory to the name of God. All of us are going to fall. All of us will not always be honorable. Yet what Paul is saying is this is what we aspire to be. This is what we want to act like. Live in this manner because of what you are and to whom you have given your allegiance rather than don't do these things because of bad things that will happen to you if you don't. The implications of this command are to be carried out in everything that we do. Christians should think about who they represent before they act because our lives are no longer our own, but they are Christ's. We are to live as Christ, right? So my life no longer belongs to me. Do people see Jesus Christ in you by the way you behave, in what you say, and in your attitudes? This has great implications for the gospel, doesn't it? Great implications, specifically the sharing of the gospel. Who is going to want to hear my witness if I'm just trying to convert you into a copy of grumpy, lustful, mean, angry Chris? If I'm out there telling people about Jesus Christ, but all you see is, is, this, is this sinful human person, then I don't want to convert to that. That's not what I want to look like either. But that's what we sometimes go out there when we do, when we witness is we're just, we're, our life is telling a different story than our mouth is telling. When Paul formulates his command for us to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, this is what he is talking about. Specifically this. When a non-Christian looks at a Christian who lives in the same manner as they do, what possible attraction could Jesus Christ have? You're living just like me. Why should I change? What, what, what possible gain would there be in my life if I become a Christian because you act just like I do? A lot of people think the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is simply our eternal destiny. The former will go to heaven and the latter are going to hell. Oh, how far from the truth. 
That is so far from the truth. The good news about Jesus Christ is not about the escape from hell. Just being real honest with you, that's not what it's about. If you're coming to church just so that you don't go to hell, you're going for the wrong reason. You're, you're, you've messed, you got the, everything all messed up. You're missing the whole point, and you may not even be going to heaven anyway. Just being honest with you. Just trying to be real genuine with you. The gospel is about salvation from sin to righteousness. And it's bringing a restored relationship with God and us. That's what happens. It's a new and a different life. Escaping hell is just a side benefit. Like, that's just like when you sit down and accept a job, and then they start to tell you all the good things that come along. You got the gym, the company gym. You got, you know, 401K and all this kind of stuff. That's exactly what it is with us. Salvation's the job. And then all of a sudden we say, oh, you also get to go to heaven. That's like the extra. Christianity is about walking in holiness with our Creator and breaking that bondage of sin. And as we walk properly with the Lord and we become more like Him, then the non-Christians are going to see the change in us and the new manner of life that will proclaim Jesus Christ in such a positive way. It'll be an honorable way. When Christians live in the same sinful way as the world, the name of Jesus Christ and his message of salvation from sin through him, it's dishonored. I can't proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and look just like the world. The gospel message will suffer. Remember that mirror I talked about last week? It's all smudged. If I'm preaching the gospel, but I don't look like a Christian, but the cause of Jesus Christ is advanced when people see Jesus Christ in us. In other words, we do not bring people to Jesus Christ by being like the world, but by being like Jesus Christ in character, attitude, and action, we draw them to him. Conduct yourself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, that brings glory to God and draws men to him. In verse 27, Paul goes on to say whether he is able to come to see them in person or not, he wanted, to be, he wanted to be able to hear. He wanted their reputation to be such that he knew that they were carrying out his commands. He wanted to be able to know by people telling him, oh man, the Philippians, they're getting that only thing. They're doing the right thing. Our reputation is the general opinion held by people about the merits or demerits of a person or thing. That's Mr. Webster tells us that. And is developed based on the reported merits or demerits of the person or thing. There is no doubt that Paul wanted to hear that the Philippians' response to his instructions would be in keeping that reputation that they had already had with him and then expressing all these things that he's telling them now. They were doing well. Everything that we read in, in the book of Philippians, the church at Philippi was doing well. He's praising them in so many aspects. They're doing well, and he expected them to continue to do even better as they walked and talked with Jesus Christ. Now the tough question, what is your reputation? I'm, I'm not really sure I want to ask it either. Is it that of the Philippians? If it is, then praise God and keep doing what you're doing. If not, today is a great day to start acting like Jesus. Every Christian is in the process of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Some of us are further along. Some of us aren't further along yet. And that's okay. We're all on this journey where Jesus is turning us in to what he wants us to be. We're always, every single one of us is going to have room to improve until the day of Christ when we see him again. And we see him as he is and we will be with him forevermore. If your reputation Listen to me, if you feel like you don't have the reputation of someone who lives for Christ, if your reputation does not glorify Jesus Christ, then work at changing it. Start to walk more closely with him. 
I have a reputation on Facebook for being a funny guy. That's kind of my reputation. I like it. I, that's, I, I, in fact, I, I want that to be my reputation. I'll never post anything vulgar. I'll never post anything argumentative. And I'll never post anything nasty. Because in my addiction eight years ago, I posted lots of things that were vulgar and nasty and argumentative. I wanted to fight. I, politics, religion, it didn't matter. I wanted to fight on Facebook. Social media, it didn't matter. I wanted to argue with people. I've often wondered what people who thought I was a Christian back then thought when they saw my social media post. I wonder what they really thought. Was I bringing glory to the name of God or was I bringing reproach to the name of Christ? I know what I was doing. And after I rededicated my life to Jesus Christ, I decided I would be a very, very different person in my online presence. And the wonderful thing about Christianity is that God takes us in whatever condition we are in. Whatever condition we are in. Even when we are sinful and even when we are enemies of him, he saves us. And then he brings that process of sanctification into our life and he begins to change us. Our reputation changes as we become more like Jesus. My reputation seven and a half years ago is not my reputation now. Thank you, Lord. And it is that change in our reputation that brings glory to him. People say, oh my word, do you see Chris? Or oh my word, do you see Donna? Look at Keith. Look at these people. Look at Brandy. Oh my word, look at Brandy. That brings glory to God when we change. We fail, but God never fails. He continues his work in us to make us more like him. The first thing that Paul wanted them to do was to stand firm. And he mentions these three specific areas, but the first one is standing firm in one spirit. The idea of standing firm is sort of a military one. It's to hold your ground. You can picture the soldiers there with their shields out, you know, kind of like in a, you know, in a row. They're, they're holding, their, they're standing firm. The soldier submitted himself to something that was greater than himself. He, that, that soldier who was on the very front lines, his chances of survival might not be great. And if he took the time to calculate it all, he might just run away. But he submitted to something that was greater than him. He served and put himself at risk for the benefit of others and for the nation that he served. The figurative usage here is to hold fast to, uh, for us, it's for us to hold fast to our beliefs and our principles, regardless of the personal cost. A Christian needs to be firmly rooted in biblical truth and refuse to compromise these truths even when it would be easier to do so or even when it results in persecution of one kind or another. In America, persecution is typically limited uh, to, to people mocking us and maybe making fun or laughing about us, uh, you know, making fun of the things of God. But it can escalate quickly to consequences that are far more severe. There can be physical persecution. There can be our lives persecuted. Jobs can be affected because of your stand for biblical truth. And increasingly, there is political persecution against biblical Christianity and in terms of losses of our rights and, and, and financial penalties. I've, I've even seen Christians be arrested in the news. In other places around the world, people are literally putting their lives on the line for Christ. Why? Why do we do this? Or why would we even stake? Why would we even risk this? Because the Christian believes God and his word and refuses to contradict it. They stand firmly on its truth and they refuse to be moved. Paul was imprisoned because he proclaimed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. 
And so that he was imprisoned. He also knew that Caesar could put him to death if Caesar thought that Paul's allegiance was to Christ and not to Rome. It would not be many years later after Paul's death when many Christians would be martyred precisely because of that in the Roman Colosseum. Christians believed that only Jesus Christ is Lord and therefore they refused to make the yearly sacrifice to Caesar as a God. They were fed to lions as results. As a result, as Christians, we should take seriously Jesus' warnings about it. He didn't say that we'll, we, we're going to just have an easy life and, and everything's going to be prosperity now. That's not what he said. He said we should expect to have tribulation in this world, John 16 and 33. And he said sinful people would insult us and do all manner of evil against us falsely because of the righteousness and because of Christ's sake, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. If they hated Jesus, expect them to hate you too. John 15, 18, and 19 specifically tells us that. Paul's command here is to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ by standing firm when that persecution comes. Another aspect of this standing firm is in resisting the temptations that come to us to compromise our faith. We must stand firm on walking in righteousness even when we are enticed by the evil around us. We decide we love God first. We love, we're coming to church, we're going to pray, we're going to... We're even going to declare all of our income on our income tax return. I'm meddling, I know. But the principle stands. The principle is a true one. We are going to conduct ourselves in such a way in all of our business and in all of our affairs that we will be living like Christians. Standing firm is to hold on to your convictions and not be swayed from living according to the truth regardless of the persecution or the enticements that come your way. It's not always easy, but the more deeply we hold our convictions, then the easier it will become to stand firm. If you hold your convictions lightly, you will lose them easily. If you hold your convictions deeply, nothing can rip them out of your hands. In addition, we are to stand firm with other believers. Paul's full statement here is they're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're in one spirit and we're in one mind. This one spirit and one mind concept is unity. We've always had that in this church. We have had unity in this church, and that's what it's pointing out. And, and Paul's actually going to expand on that in chapter 2, because here he's talking about how we got to stick together. Christians are not meant to be hermits. We are to work together in helping one another with our walk with Christ. Paul's explanation of the body concept of the church in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4 all stress how each believer is equipped by God to serve in the church for the benefit of the whole body. All of us are benefit each other. We all need each other. I need you and you need me. I think that we'll all agree that it's a lot easier to stand firm for what we believe when there's somebody standing there beside you. This idea of one mind adds in that unity of thought in addition to our emotion and our will. We, we even believe the same stuff. Again, Paul's going to expand on this theme of unity in chapter 2, but for here, what I want you to understand is the common belief, the desires, and the priorities make for a strong bond for our defense and offense of the faith. Together, we're to stand firm against whatever is opposed to the gospel, while at the same time, together, we're more effective in proclaiming the gospel. And Paul is bringing that out at the end of this verse. We're striving together for the faith. As fellow Christians, we have a common goal in proclaiming Christ to the world. While in many groups that have a common goal, sometimes there is a, people fight. They want to be on top. They want to be the boss of the group. They want to take over the group. We're not to strive against each other. We're to strive with each other. We're to sacrifice our own position and our welfare for the common good because it's not about an individual. It's about the cause of Christ. 
to use a sports analogy, that's the easiest one. Yesterday was a lot of football. LSU should have won by a lot more points, by the way. But to use a sports analogy, the church is a team. We all work together so that the team can accomplish its goals. Did you know that on the play where Ohio State scored against Notre Dame to go ahead, Notre Dame only had 10 men on the field? They didn't have 11. So Ohio State had 11, but Notre Dame only had 10. We've all got to do our part. And, and exactly the place where Ohio State scored, they, they, they did a little, little end-around run, that's where the, the defender was missing. So it's important that we're all on the team together. The quarterback is going to get more attention. That's just the way it is. People are going to see Brother Bruce more. He's the pastor. But if it wasn't for some offensive lineman guarding Brother Bruce, you know where he's ending up, on his rear end. And that's not good. <laughs> I don't know. She may be saying, I, I wouldn't mind seeing it once. You know. <laughs> Paul speaks of this principle in 1 Corinthians 12, 22 through 26. He says, The members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice in it. Anytime a visiting preacher comes and talks to this church and says great things about Brother Bruce, he is talking about you. He is everything he's saying about Brother Bruce is about you as well. It, we are on a team together, and one member is honored. All of us are honored. In this church, as in any athletic team, if someone is out for their own success, the team will suffer. A selfish person simply cannot be a good church leader because a good church leader must continually be placing their own will below that of Jesus Christ, always subservient to what the church needs. The particular context here is that the church is to strive together for the gospel and, and for the faith. Our common goal is our goal is the common belief and proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we desire for people to come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and to learn to walk with him. Each person in the body uses the gifts that God gave us in the ministry to benefit that purpose of the body. We're all in that purpose of the body. This includes making sure that the gospel message itself is never compromised. We show we are conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel when we are unified in our stand against anything that would compromise its message. And then we do not yield to temptation or persecution that comes against us because we follow Jesus Christ. Number three is without fear. In verse 28, Paul encourages them concerning the opposition they were facing in no way alarmed by your opponents. This is the third element that demonstrates a worthy walk with Christ is not being in fear of the enemies of Christianity or what we might suffer at their hands. Believers are not to be controlled by fear. We're not. He tells us that in Romans 8 and 15, 2 Timothy 1 and 7, and Philippians 4 and 6. We are not to worry. We're not to have fear. We can place our trust in God and we can have peace of mind. You can fall asleep with no worries. Just fall asleep because your trust is in the Lord. Paul knew what his circumstances were. He knew prison was an option. He knew death was an option. But heaven and hell are both real things too. Matthew 25, Jesus tells us that. Heaven is enjoying the blessedness of being a part of God's kingdom while hell is being shut out from that and for eternal torment described by Jesus as a place of eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. When you are persecuted for righteousness' sake and for Christ's name, it is a confirmation that you are on the right side. 
I know somebody in here is thinking that's circular logic, Chris. But I'm telling you, when we are persecuted for the name of Christ, it tells me I am on the right side. I'm doing the right thing. A person's enemies confirms which side they are on. So when you, the devil and, and all of his followers and his imps and, and, and all of his people are against you, it's a confirmation you are on God's side. When you can face opposition without fear, it is then a confirmation that you are living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we do all of this, all of this on behalf of Jesus Christ. In verses 29 and 30, Paul wraps up this immediate thought by pointing out again the confidence they could have in God in the midst of any suffering. He says, for, you it has been, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, so you saw that I was afflicted. You saw that I suffered opposition. And now you hear even that I'm facing affliction. The word here for been granted is, is, is kind of the same word for grace. Paul viewed both their salvation and their suffering as gifts from God. Are y'all ready for that? Y'all ready for that? I mean, is that something we're ready to accept? It's not hard for us to understand that believing in Jesus... It, 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 this great gift of grace from God, that's easy for us to understand. We were dead in our trespasses, right? Anybody here holy before you ever met God? Not me. I needed him. I, I absolutely, I was dead in my trespasses and sin. I was in opposition to God, yet he provided for my salvation. And through what Jesus did on the cross, I was saved from my sin. God convicted of us our sins and, and, and enabled us to believe that we could turn our lives over to him and be saved. That's the very gospel and we didn't deserve it. So it's easy for us to understand that is a blessing. What is harder for us to comprehend, and especially the American church, is that suffering for Christ's sake is also a gift. It's hard because suffering is considered to be an aberration in our culture. It's temporary. Suffering is not something any of us are supposed to do. We don't deserve suffering is kind of the idea in our, in our minds. And I know that most of us immediately would like God to withhold that blessing, right? Don't bless me with suffering, Lord. But we need to remember that our lives are not about ourselves. They are about God's glory. Suffering for Christ's sake is direct evidence that we are living for God's glory. For all who strive to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3 and 12. We know from John 15 and other passages, we can expect those who hate Jesus to hate us as well. We know that's going to come. We've been told Jesus ain't hiding the ball from us. He's told us the whole thing from the beginning. Again, that hatred is a confirmation that they can see Jesus living in us, and that brings glory to God. In addition, God uses the tribulations of persecution to help us mature. If our goal is to be like Jesus Christ, how many of you, your goal is to be like Jesus? All of us, look, everybody's raising their hand. Our goal is to be like Jesus. Then sometimes God uses tribulations to accomplish that goal. Paul's example, he gave us in verse 30, the Philippians had and we have Paul's own example of how to understand and properly respond to God's grace gift of suffering. As I've already mentioned, we overcome our circumstances, including that suffering, by looking to see what is God trying to do in the middle of this. Paul did that and he rejoiced and, and so did the rest of the apostles, Acts 5 and 41. We can do the same when we conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. If I'm not conducting myself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, I'm going to see suffering as something I have to absolutely avoid. 
I'm going to run away from it. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get rid of it. I can't deal with suffering. But when I am conducting myself in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, I understand that sometimes those trials, sometimes those tribulations, they are the process by which God perfects me. It's the process by which God turns me into the image of Him. I'm no longer my own person, but I'm being molded and made into a new creation by Christ. And if you're afraid that you could not handle such suffering in the manner, don't worry. God's not going to allow us to go through anything that He has either not prepared us for or He has not provided a way of escape. He's never going to put you through something that He hasn't already prepared you for or that He hasn't already prepared a way of escape for you. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13. We can be confident. We can stand confident before God. We can, we can go through suffering. We can understand that suffering sometimes is for our benefit because we are trying to live worthy of the gospel. I ask you this week, and I'm done. All I'm asking you this week is to look at your conduct. Am I living in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? What is my reputation? What do people think of me when they, when they see me or when they, if, if, I, were to, if I were to blurt out some, some bad word or if I were to just get angry and mad, would people say, boy, that's out of Chris's character? Or would they say, oh, that's just Chris being Chris? And the reason I say it that way is because I don't expect anybody here to be perfect. You're going to lose your temper. We're all going to have, but when, I, when something like that happens, my reputation should be such that people say, wow, Chris is acting different today. He's normally acting really Christian, and today he seemed like he really lost it. Does that make sense? We're sometimes going to lose it every once in a while, but I want my reputation to be such that when I do, people are like, that's just not Chris. That's not who he is because we're living to be different than the world. We're living so that our lives are an example to the world so that they will draw all men unto him. People will be beating down the back of those doors to get in this place because we act like Christians. We look like little Christ. Remember that that's in Antioch, they, the people who were Christians were called Christians because they were little Christs. Let us be little Christs as we live our lives this week. Think about that. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. We invite you to stay for our second service, which will begin at 11.15 this week instead of 10.15, like I said last week. Thank you all for being here today. I just want to give you a reminder. I don't, I'm, not, I, I'm never here to make anybody feel bad about what you, what you did last week or what you're doing. I just want us all to start trying to live like Jesus Christ. I get up here sometimes and I preach myself into conviction. I'm like, oh, Chris, you messed up a couple of times this week. I, I start reading the things I've written down and I'm like, I didn't do it either. But God wants to transform us. He wants to sanctify us. He wants to make us into to people who just look like him and show forth his glory. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for meeting us here today. We thank you for your love and your presence, God. I pray that you would remind us each day, God, that we are just the image of Jesus Christ, that we're, we're your hands and we're your feet, and we're walking around this earth, and we're, we're running into people every day, and, and we're, we're telling them our testimony every time we run into them, God. And what testimony are we telling them, God? Help us to look like you. Help us to act like you. Help us to respond like you. Help us to become more like you each day. I pray a blessing on this group of people. Go with them this week. Protect them. Watch over them. Help them to learn to live like you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.